All right, today is December 7th, 2015, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Stephen Wolf, and with me is Melissa Bloom, a physical therapist, neuro neurologic specialist, and uh, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Wolf about all kinds of things. So, thank you for agreeing to, to work with us. Sure. And I've already warned you, it's not going to be a repeat of uh, the Ann Shumway Cook lecture. Got that. <laughs> and um, I'm free to say what I want right now? Absolutely. So the only people who call me Dr. Wolf are my family members. That's obligatory. <laughs> so we have to say Dr. Wolf, or just we say Steve? Uh, we can say Steve. That makes me feel much better. Okay. Great. Okay, we're Wonderful. Good. All right, so you became a physical therapist after graduating from Columbia in 1966, and then, I know, Boston University... You got a master's in 1969, and then you rapidly transitioned to research, and you earned your Ph.D. at Emory in 1973. Why did you become a PT? Well, I became a PT uh, because I wanted to do something that involved helping folks uh, that was much more personalized than medicine, mm -hmm. and uh, I thought physical therapy would be a very good option. And I became a PT because I wanted to treat patients. In fact, I did for my first two years in the U.S. Public Health Service. Mm -hmm. And while I was in um, the Public Health Service back in 1966 to 68, I was in an environment that was way ahead of its time, one in which we didn't get prescriptions from physicians. The mandate was real simple. Was, Here's a patient, evaluate and treat them. And I had not been exposed to this degree of openness during my clinical affiliations. And the response I, asked, I received when I asked about prescriptions, it was very simple. You're supposed to know what to do, not us. So in that context, it was very common for interns and residents in particular to come up to the clinic and observe what we're doing with their patients. And in that context, I asked a lot of questions. And amongst those is, well, why are you doing what you're doing? How, how does it work? And so often I didn't know. And often I was You didn't asked, know the answer. Didn't, and that bothered me to the point where I decided I had to go back to school to start to learn more. And that inquiry process simply stayed with me. What a lot of folks don't realize is that while I was in the public health service and while I was in graduate school, getting my master's in PT, I moonlighted running a PT clinic in a nursing home in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Did that for two years before I wound up going back down to, back to Atlanta. Um, and what other folks don't realize is that for most of my research years, mm -hmm. I spent a minimum of an equivalent of 20% time treating patients. Wow. In fact, some of the ideas that have evolved over these many years came from suggestions that patients had or observations that were made by trying to work with them. But there's always been this assumption that you have to be labeled and categorized something, which I think is unfortunate. So I'm very proud of the fact, to answer your question, that while I may be an educator and a researcher, I continue to treat patients until about three years ago. What made you stop? Just too committed to the things I'm doing now, simply don't have enough enough time. I'd like to think it's not age-related, <laughs> but, but, but more uh, some time commitments. I've, 
as you probably know, I run several clinical trials and have become involved in other activities that I think are meaningful, such as development of, of an app, and now the Frontiers in Rehab Science and Technology Initiative through the APTA, which are very time-consuming activities. So how did you get the inspiration for the constraint-induced uh, program and it's all, all its, uh, its evolution? Uh, it's an interesting, that's a very interesting story. Um, so I was a member of the, what used to be called the Biofeedback Society of America way back from my days of first coming here as a graduate student. My mentor was a chap named John Basmation who was very big in EMG biofeedback and some people had described at one time or another as the, the father of EMG feedback. And he introduced me to the Biofeedback Society of America. I would attend those meetings. And of course, there are various forms of biofeedback. And you get to meet all these folks, and you have that interest in common. One of the individuals I met was a chap named Ed Taub. And Ed um, was at the biofeedback meetings, not because of the work he had done with deafferentation of monkeys, which I'll get to in a moment, but because um, he also was interested in feedback, specifically changes in peripheral skin temperature as a basis for potentially treating Raynaud's disease in the absence of medications. Mm -hmm. And I had this interest in EMG feedback, and he was doing these deafferentation studies in, in monkeys um, and, and suggested that maybe we ought to consider making folks who've had strokes use their impaired upper extremity by immobilizing their better. Um, and that seemed pretty in intriguing to me. At the same time, um, I started looking through the literature, and that thought, as is so often the case, was not new at all. It was actually first suggested in 1917 by Ogden and Franz. Hmm. <laughs> and the way that came about, uh, to divert just for a moment, is uh, he was doing cortical lesions in monkeys and then observing their behaviors in their native cages to see whether they'd use their impaired. Um, their hemiparetic arm or leg. And so quite serendipitously, as is often the case, tied down their better limb and found that they would still begin to navigate their cages with their impaired upper extremity. And he suggested that this be a treatment approach applied to veterans returning from the First World War who had sustained head injuries. That idea was so outrageous uh, and perceived by the public as being something that was unfair and beyond comprehension for war veterans, that the idea literally lay dormant for about 30 or 40 years until it was resurrected again in animal models. Um, and one of Dr. Taub's uh, mentors um, is a chap named Berman who started doing some of these experiments and Ed followed up on them. So at the same time he was interested in biofeedback and peripheral vascular problems, he was also interested in pursuing, and was pursuing, uh, his work in deafferentation, which is not quite the same as a central nervous system lesion. Was the 1978, um, was the guy that rec made those recommendations, was he, what was his background? So Ed Tell? Oh, was that the one so, in 1917? No, no, no. no 1917, they were both neurologists. Oh, I mean, they were neurologists. Were, okay. Yes, European neurologists, and, were making, making, and very famous people in, in their own right. Um, so, Ed, uh, unfortunately, one of the side effects <clears throat> of the afferenting a limb is that a, a monkey begins to see that limb as a foreign object and will eat it. 
start to gnaw at the limb. And that requires a great deal of care on the part of the caregivers uh, for those animals. And Dr. Taub had a very uh, viable and successful research laboratory in Silver Springs, Maryland. He hired a gentleman to be the director of those animal labs. And unbeknownst to Dr. Taub, he, um, Alex Pacquio is his name, uh, was pretty much set against this kind of behavior. And on um, uh, Labor Day weekend, 1981, um, strung up these animals um, and exposed their bandages and literally had them tied to instruments in the lab and called the police who raided the Taub laboratories. And that was the so-called Silver Spring Monkeys incident that led to the founding of PETA by Alex Pacquio. So that led to a great deal of turmoil, as you might imagine. Um, and uh, the Society for Neuroscience spent quite a bit of money supporting Dr. Taub and all that was at stake in um, the claims that were being made against him. But uh, one of the conditions of uh, the uh, exoneration of Dr. Taub is that he no longer worked with animals. And he moved to University of Alabama, Birmingham. It was during that time um, that uh, he had suggested we pursue this work in stroke survivors. <clears throat> but is sometimes forgotten is that the suggestion was actually made before the Silver Springs Monkeys incident because our first publication was in July of 1981, mm -hmm. three months before mm. the Silver Spring Monkeys incident as a case study in the PT Journal. Subsequent to that, we got funding to do a five-year project on what we call forced use, mm -hmm. which basically was a two-week time interval in which individuals, chronic stroke survivors, would be made to use their impaired upper extremity by immobilizing the better limb in a, um, um, a sling with a cuff around the end of it uh, and uh, giving them instructions to work on their own at home to be distinguished from constraint-induced movement therapy, a term developed by Dr. Taub later, which required one-on-one -on -one formalized training and now all of its modifications. Um, of home-based rather than and distributed practice rather than intense, sometimes called signature constraint-induced movement therapy. You you have such a wide spectrum of research, um, you know, that you've been part of, part of. Do you have one area or one question that you feel like is your that you're most passionate about, or? or is uh, it just the one the one at this point in my life, the one thing I'm most passionate about is the unknown. And, and trying to get some sense of what needs to be known, um, both in terms of fostering a survival mode and being contemporary. And I can give you an example. I started to talk to you earlier about something that came out of the 2009 APTA Physical Therapy and Society Summit, the past meeting. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to be on the steering committee for that meeting, and several of us who were on that committee agreed to do that. Just to remind you, this was an external review of the profession that was mandated by the 2006 House of Delegates with a report back to the House by June of 2009 to have the 
other groups look at our vision statement and um, uh, offer a critical assessment of where we are and where we should be going. So there are over 24 different agencies and groups that participated in this. And um, we agreed to organize and help run this meeting, which was quite successful, with a proviso that we, the steering committee, had total control over the dissemination effort. We certainly will provide a report back to the House, which, by the way, was approved, approved unanimously, which was the impetus for what I'm about to tell you. Um, and several publications that we could control, not the board of directors of the APTA. So among the recommendations that came forth was the, the, the recognition that there are core areas in physical therapy that are being underappreciated and underserved that will be critical to the future of the profession. And those four areas are telehealth, or telerehabilitation, genomic rehab interfaces, mm. um, sensing technology in virtual environments, and genomic rehabilitation interfaces, and regenerative rehabilitation. So those, from that, we got some funding from APTA to create interdisciplinary groups, PTs and non-PTs working in these four areas, to develop informational bases that can be shared and are being shared with anyone who has an APTA representation who wants to do that. The problem at this point is that um, I, Key resources at APT were not that great, so we're getting very frustrated, frustrated because for a variety of reasons, educational units were not easily accessing this information that was being generated in terms of PowerPoints, uh, journal articles, podcasts, the kinds of things you think you might want to have. Um, and there was a need to do something about this. So we've kind of come to a standstill because I, I personally think this is critical to the future of our profession because these are contemporaries that are not going to go away. Um, we've had an opportunity now at two education leadership meetings to talk to all of the PT programs about this, and there is no one who fails to buy in, in any program. And the reason for that is we've never presented this as something for the haves and have-nots, uh, for the research one institutions can have great access to this information and use it while the smaller programs cannot. We deliberately are making this accessible to everyone. So everyone buys into that. The problem is the ease of accessibility, and that's been a stumbling block at this point. What we've been able to, um, I think, propose now, and hopefully will be approved, is the development of a council, a first, first, we call ourselves Frontiers in Rehab Science and Technology Council, made up of um, representation of PTs and non-PTs. No one gets paid for this. Everyone's doing this out of the kindness of their heart. And section representatives to govern these four areas, and potentially future areas have yet to be described, to create this group that will work together cohesively to, to move these initiatives forward. So that's kind of where we are. The proposal is just about ready to go to the Board of the Treasures of the APTA, and we hope we'll have something out in front of everyone by the combined sections meeting. Oh, that'll be good. So yeah. that's, you asked me where my passions are right yeah. now. Yeah. And you know, as you've been, on, been around for several years, I. At this point, I don't particularly care what people think. <laughs> I just do what I want to do and, uh, and like to think it might have some meaning. This concludes the shortened version of the Steve Wolf interview. Download the full interview to hear more about his early work and his current projects. Thank you for listening.